fresh in the middle, right in the middle of our uh, series going from the garden to glory. And so tonight we're going to open up with Philippians 2 and 8. It says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So in layman's terms, put this in words that I can understand. It says, After he appeared in human form, he humbled himself even still further, and he carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even the extreme of the cross. So our study over these uh, last few weeks and going into next week, it's taking us all the way from the garden to the ascension of Jesus. It's tracking the mission that Jesus had, those steps from Gethsemane all the way to his uh, return back to heaven. Last week, we detailed and we applied his journey through the early hours of what you and I call Good Friday. We went through his makeshift grand jury that he had with the high priests and the conviction that he had before the Sanhedrin. We looked at the trials and the sentencing that he had before Herod and Pilate. And from this, we learned some valuable lessons. We learned the lesson of prioritizing God's will over all else. Anyone remember the, the highlight word we learned last week? Nevertheless. Never is, is God's will going to become less than anything in my life. It's the, the highest priority. It's the highest will and call that I can have is following after God's plan. We learned the lesson of finding expectation and validation in God's word and in God's will. In today's society and really just as people, it's easy for us to find validation in others and to look for uh, others to lift us up and point us in the right direction, but true validation only comes from the Lord. We learn the lesson that God's glory is revealed in his miracles. This isn't just for you and I. It's not so that we see a great show. It's that God would receive the glory through every miracle, every sign, every wonder that he did and does. It's for his glory. So tonight, we're going to continue our trek with Jesus, and we're going to look past the garden and into his death and burial. So let's start with um, the, convic the, the crucifixion, and let's just, um, I'm going to take a little bit more of a, um, let's just say an academic approach at just describing the, uh, the horrific act of crucifixion, I think it's really important um, to understand exactly what had happened. You know, the Bible gives us um, some detail uh, and enough to know that it was really, really bad. But history gives us graphic detail. And I think it's important to understand the suffering that Jesus went through. I think it puts a weight and a validity to uh, the price that was paid for our sin and really what we owed, what we owed for uh, our sinful nature. Jesus in John 12 and 31 said this, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And Jesus, the Bible, John says, Jesus said this signifying what death he should die. And it was the death of the cross. Now, a lot has been done in, in modern, let's say the last uh, 50 years, 100 years maybe, 
to really, in some ways, glamorize the cross and make it this wonderful, beautiful thing. Uh, it's, it's in artwork. It's in jewelry. Uh, it's become a symbol, which rightly so. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. But, but I got to tell you, in reality, the cross is ugly. Uh, there is nothing beautiful about it. Uh, it is a place of shame. Uh, it was a place of agony, uh, a place of dishonor, and a place of punishment. So when Paul preaches to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2, when he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's really saying a little bit more than just those words. To him, this is a reminder of, of the cruelty, of the pain, the sacrifice, the payment, or you know, the King James uses this word atonement, the payment for sin that he was talking about. Now, crucifixion was a common mode of punishment for criminals among heathen nations, and especially in Rome. I want to say, you know, you could probably trace it back further than this, but it was pretty prominent in Greek culture and in uh, Greek government. But the Romans perfected it. They were very, very good at it. And, and, and this was regarded as the most horrible form of death of its time. Even, even the Romans were known, were known to call it the most cruel and disgusting penalty. Even the Romans themselves that used it said, this is the worst we can do. And to a Jew, in this case, it would carry an even greater shame and greater horror uh, from the curse that the law dictated that it would be. Deuteronomy uh, 21 and 23, uh, there was a part of the law that said when they, uh, when, when they hang somebody for punishment, that his body should not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. And then it makes a statement for he that is hanged is accursed of God. So just understand this was considered anybody in this, uh, for, for a Jewish standpoint, there was this additional shame that not only did you receive the punishment from, you know, um, uh, the criminal activity or whatever, but in Jesus's case, everyone would look on him, at least from a Jewish perspective and said, this is a curse from God. So, so crucifixion had pretty heavy connotations that went along with it. Uh, it began actually way before the cross. It began with a, um, with an act called scourging, which, uh, uh, the, the, the sufferer was subjected this before he went to the cross. And it consisted of really, uh, a hybrid between a beating and a whipping. And the reason I say that is because they would use these whips. Um, some have called it a cat of nine tails, uh, but basically leather straps. And on the end of these straps, the, there would be things like uh, pieces of metal, uh, pieces of pottery, uh, I'm sorry, pottery, uh, bones, so that when, when the, the convict was, was whipped, when the, when the whip came down upon the back, literally it was not just stripes, but these these implements on the end of this whip would tear at the flesh. So, oh, Pastor, you're being so graphic. graphic. But, but I want you to get an idea of how horrific this was. All right? So every time this whip came down upon the back of our Savior, it literally ripped him open. 
Uh, this was not done just out of cruelty, but it was designed. It was part of the crucifixion process. And it was designed to hasten the death and, and really lessen this terrible ordeal. So for a lack of a better term, they literally would beat them half to death so that crucifixion would finish the job. Literally, the body was laid open. Um, the, the bruising and the internal organs were laid bare. And so, but in the case of Jesus, however, his scourging was before the sentence was actually passed upon him. And it was inflicted by Pilate for the purpose, probably in an attempt, we kind of talked about this last week, to pacify the Jewish rulers. Well, maybe if I scourge him, you know, we can save him, uh, make a way for him to escape further punishment. But we see from last week's lesson that did not work. It was actually, though, whether Pilate realized it, whether the rulers realized it, in hindsight, we realize it, and that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. And you've, you've heard this. Every time we pray for the sick, you've probably heard this, you know, quoted. Isaiah 53 and 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt and iniquities. The chastisement, the, the needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. And with his stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. I'm reading from the Amplified Version. So, so those stripes were a prophecy for us. I mean, that, that comes right down to us in this room today, that we are healed with his stripes. So this, the condemned one would then, from the scourging, carry his own cross. Now, crosses, I don't know that historians are exactly sure. Some, you know, cite the traditional cross in a T. Others said it was more, of, I'm sorry, in a, in a cross form. Others said it was more like a T. But either way, whether it was an entire cross or as maybe just a cross beam, the, the uh, transgressor, the condemned, was sentenced to carry his own cross to the place of ex execution which most of the time was outside of the city. In this case, we know it was a place called Golgotha outside of the Jerusalem city limits, and it was set apart for that purpose. So, so before nailing, the, nailing to the cross took place, they would offer or, or administer, try to administer at least, a medicated cup of vinegar. Uh, the Bible calls it wine, but it was really just um, uh, fermented vinegar mixed with gall, uh, it was given, and the purpose was this, was to deaden the pains of the sufferer. But isn't it interesting to note that Jesus would refuse that cup? And, that, and, and I believe it's because he wanted his senses to be clear, and he would take the full extent of suffering for us that the cross would dish out to him. Seven-inch nails would be driven through his wrists, so that the bones right here could support the body's weight. The nail would sever the median nerve that's right there. Go ahead, just tap yourself right there. You'll feel a little tingle. You'll feel a little tingle in your fingertips. That's your median nerve. It would, it would cause immense pain. I just had a little accident with my hand and I cut this and I, I, I bruised this little nerve here. And it has been, I, I mean, I can't, it was horrific. I cannot even understand or fathom what it would be like to have that nerve shooting up and down your arms, clear up into your shoulders. So it would sever that median nerve and not only cause immense pain, but it would have paralyzed his hands. His, his feet were nailed to the upright part of the crucifix, flat against it. 
so that the knees were bent at about 45 degrees. His outstretched hands above his head, that sort of posture, would, would put a strain. In fact, you could try it if you want to. Just leave your hands up for this while and start feeling what it does to your chest. It puts a strain and a uh, constraint upon the chest cavity, prohibiting breathing and normal blood flow. Once the legs gave out because of exhaustion and because of all the trauma from the beating, the weight would be transferred to his arms, gradually dragging the shoulders literally from their sockets. The elbows and wrists would follow a few minutes later. And, the, and he would have no choice but to bear his weight, the entire weight of his body, on his chest. He would immediately have severe trouble breathing as the weight caused his rib cage to lift up and force him into a constant state of inhaling, unable to really exhale and get rid of the carbon dioxide in his lungs. This would make the lungs stiffer and make breathing even more difficult and pressure around the heart would begin to impair its, its ability to pump blood to the rest of his body. And for Jesus, the collective trauma of the garden bearing our sins, the collective trauma of the scourging, of, of organ failure and suffocation would slowly take his life. Someone nailed to a crucifix in great health and great condition with their arms stretched out like that on either side could be expected to live for maybe up to 24 hours. But Jesus' trauma was so great and his suffering was so great, he lasted only about six. And to speed death, executioners would often break the legs of their victims so they would have no choice uh, uh, or no chance, I'm sorry, of using the muscles in their legs as support. But the Bible tells us very clearly that by the time they got to Jesus, he had already died and said it is finished. This was also a a fulfillment of prophecy. The omission of breaking of his legs was a fulfillment of of a type and shadow from the Old Testament. In Exodus 12 and 46, it says, in one house shall it be eaten. He's talking about the Passover meal. Everybody remember that? From reading the Passover meal, they were all to, to eat the meal of the Passover and God was going to take them out. Jesus was a type and shadow of the Passover. And here's what it said about the Passover meal. In one house are the lamb of the Passover meal. In one house it shall be eaten. And thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh you brought out of the house. Neither shall you break a bone thereof. Because Jesus was the Passover lamb. Psalms 34 and 20 also bears witness to this prophecy. And it prophesies about Jesus and says, he keeps all his bones, his bones, not one of them is broken. So instead of his bones being broken, in John 19, 34, the Bible says one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. And from that wound came forth blood and water. Doctors now look back in that and said, and say that that is, that, is, that is physical, scientific evidence, medical evidence, that Jesus literally died from a broken heart. And by that, I mean literally his heart ruptured within his body, and hence the flowing of blood and water when, he's, when he was pierced. Jesus suffered on that cross. You begin to put everything in perspective. I, I was joking with Pastor before we were doing this wasn't sure I was going to be able to go through through this whole thing without crying. You know, 
He doesn't cry like I do. I'm a crier. I get it from my mother. When you really begin to think about what Jesus did, mm-hmm. you start to put it in perspective, and you start to, to review the details. It becomes more than just a symbol, and you realize that it was for you and I. There's something that begins to well up in me. I don't know how you can, can process all that and not just be thankful Man. for what Jesus is and what he did. His suffering, this whole process, this agony that Jesus went through is for you and I. The Bible says at the third hour or at 9 a.m., they took Jesus and they put him on that cross. They put an accusation up above him, and Pilate wrote, the king of the Jews. All the high priests, they went to Pilate and they said, we want you to remove this. We want you to write it differently. You know, he, he claimed that he was the king of the Jews, so we want you to write it that way, that this man says that he's the king of the Jews. But we learned last week that it seems like Pilate was the only one around that really understood the gravity of what was going on. So he looked at all those priests and he said, what I've written, I've written. It'll read, the king of the Jews. The centurions that were taking Jesus, they took his garments and they began to cast lots for them or they began to gamble with dice for them. In John 19 and 24, as they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend, let us not rip this apart, but cast lots for it, for whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. This was another fulfillment of prophecy. It's reverting back to the psalmist in Psalm 22 and 18. It said they were going to cast lots for his garments. Luke 23 and 34 says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They parted his raiment, and they cast lots. Even as these, these men were fighting over Jesus' clothes, and they had put him on the cross, and we heard the agony that that was, that the, the spikes had been driven through his wrists and been driven through his feet, even in the middle of him struggling for breath. He said, Lord, forgive them because they don't even understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. In the midst of pain, in the midst of him being mocked and ridiculed, Jesus still looked at people with forgiveness. I'm so glad the cross does, doesn't speak death, mm-hmm. but the cross speaks forgiveness. Amen. That it looked not only at people in that moment. It didn't just look at the centurion standing in front of him, but it looked all the way across history to where you and I are today and looked into every dark sin that we would ever commit, every mistake, every problem, and the cross spoke forgiveness. I'm thankful for the cross. Amen. Even as he was speaking this, other people began to pass by Jesus. They started to speak abusively to them, and the Bible says that they wagged their heads to Jesus. And again, this is fulfilling prophecy. If you look at Psalm 22 and 7 and Psalm 109 and 25, it says that they would look on Jesus and they would wag their heads at them and they would mock him. These people began to, to shout, if you're really God, if you're really this son of, son of God, if you're the Christ, then why don't you just pull yourself off the cross? 
You have all the capability. You have all the power. Why don't you just remove yourself? You could save all these other people, right? You could perform all these miracles, and you did all these wonders. So if you can do that, why can't you save yourself? It said things like, is this the same man that said that he was going to destroy the temple, and in three days he would raise it up? Because they didn't understand what Jesus meant by those words. As all this was going on, there was two thieves that were next to Jesus. They're on crosses of their own. And one of those thieves began to jump in with all these people, and he mocked Jesus. But the other looked to him and said, Do you not fear God? These thieves started talking to each other. So do you understand that we're here for a purpose? You and I have committed sin. We were charged, and we're guilty. That's why we're here. But this man, Jesus, he's blameless. He is guilt-free. And in Luke 23 and 42, that man said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The cross spoke forgiveness. After six hours of this agony, six hours of suffering, at this point, no doubt his, his arms had come out of the sockets. No doubt he was struggling to breathe and he was getting to the point where he couldn't hold on anymore and his humanity began to cry out and he said, God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we learned last week, when you look at Jesus, you have to understand that it was a dual nature. It was both humanity and it was deity. Right. So his flesh was suffering. He was dying, so he cried out in pain. Why have you left me here? Why have you forsaken me? And I'm so glad that we learned last week in the garden he had already made a decision, mm -hmm. that he knew the suffering he was going to go through, and he had already decided that this was for the right cause. Yes. John 19 and 30 said, When Jesus therefore had received vinegar, and he had pushed it away, his pastor said. He said, it is finished. He bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. And in this moment, the veil that was in the temple, it was ripped in two. The separation that had been there, you have to understand at this time, in order for people to atone or or to cover their sin, they had to go to a temple, and they had to bring a sacrifice, and that blood had to be covered on an altar. Everything had to be just right, and that priest would take it into the Holy of Holies past that veil. Everything had to be done by a man of God. It was separated between God and man. But when Jesus died on the cross, yes. that veil was ripped in half, and no more did you have to go to a priest. Right. But now we were able to have individual relationship with God. Amen. It was broken. That sacrifice, it opened up the Holy of Holies to you and I with a single act. And the blood of Jesus paid a price for our sin, and that wall was broken between us and our Savior. We learned that the custom of that time was to break the legs of the people on the cross, it was to hasten death, who wanted to quicken this process. We catch up with the story in John 19 and 32. It says, Then came the soldiers, and they break the legs of the, the first, that thief next to him. Then they went to the other and they broke his legs. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. 
and they break not his, his legs. It's another fulfillment of prophecy. But one of the soldiers with a spear, he pierced his side, and forthwith came out blood and water. And he saw that it bare record, and that the record is true, and he knoweth that he said it true, that you might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, the scripture saith, they shall look on him who was pierced. Time and time again, we see scripture proving itself. It's so cool to look across scripture and to know that this was written by so many different people, so many different perspectives and across so many different time frames, but the Bible does not contradict itself. In fact, it proves itself. Mm -hmm. We see this in this act that the Bible is proving itself over and over and over again. We learned earlier of this custom that the Jews, this was a horrific death. and it was, it was sinly to leave this person up on the cross. And so there was a man named Joseph. He was a Aramathian. Look up that word, Aramathian. He went to Pilate. Because he knew this custom, he begged Pilate to get Jesus' body and to have it buried. Pilate obliged, and so Joseph took the body of Jesus pulled it off a cross, and he wrapped it in fresh linen, and he laid it inside a fresh empty tomb and sealed that tomb there. So we've, we've gone through the uh, specifics of crucifixion to understand exactly what happened to Jesus. We've walked through a timeline and saw how uh, not only uh, the details and eyewitness accounts of what happened uh, to Jesus, but also how they, how they fulfilled um, Old Testament prophecy, and we really didn't just scratch the surface on that. You can find all kinds of, all kinds of other fulfillments, especially in the Psalms. Uh, there's so much uh, typology there of the crucified Christ, um, uh, even in Isaiah. Uh, as you you start reading through those books with the eyes of trying to find Jesus and his crucifixion and his sacrifice. Uh, let me just tell you, that's a great study. It'll jump off the page. Um, but let's talk for a couple. And to me, this is the exciting part. If, if you're depressed and like, oh, wow, man, that's just, that all sounds horrible. Well, let me tell you, there was a great reason why all that happened. And, uh, and that's, that's the good news. To understand how this horrible, terrible event is good news, you have to go back to the Old Testament and realize what's going what's really spiritually going on when Jesus goes to Calvary and he suffers and he dies and he's buried now uh, we could go back to the Old Testament law and we could find all those types and shadows but for sake of time tonight we're going to let Paul frame this for us because he does it really well in just a few words now I'm reading from uh, a different translation. I believe it's a New Living Translation, if I'm not mistaken, because as even Peter said, Paul can be a little wordy and a little hard to understand. And most people would agree, or at least a lot of people think that Paul wrote Hebrews. But Hebrews 9, Paul kind of lays all this out and tells us really what spiritually happened. He takes everything we just talked about and he says, here's what was going on in the, in the whole transaction of humanity of man and in the spirit world. In fact, according to the law of Moses, he says, nearly everything was purified by blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He says that is why the tabernacle and everything in it, 
which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with a far better sacrifice than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into the holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the holy place year after year with the blood of an animal to push sin back. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But Paul says, but now, this is great, but now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. So all of what we just detailed and study, understand Jesus knew the end game. Let's go back to the garden. He knew his mission. His mission was, I'm going to walk through this atrocity. I'm going to endure this suffering. I'm going to despise the shame because on the other side of this is a thing called redemption. Redemption for my creation, for men, women, boys, and girls. In short, Paul says this, he fulfills the Old Testament law that would only be a placeholder for a season of time on this earth until Jesus would come and literally become, I want you to understand that, he literally became the Passover lamb that you study back in the Exodus. He became, that was a, that was a type and a shadow, it was a placeholder. He became the Passover lamb that once and for all would cover the price of sin. For this reason, this is why Paul can write so definitively to like, for instance, the church in Colossians in chapter one and verse 14 and said in him, we have redemption through his blood, even in addition, the forgiveness of sins. Now, redemption simply is the act of paying a ransom in full. And more than once, we're, we're depicted in Scripture, New Testament Scripture, we were slaves to sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We have no hope for our sin. But he paid that price. He paid the ransom that was on us because of the nature of sin we were born into. Everybody with me? Very important. That's the importance of the cross. Now, if you think about it, Joe, uh, let's say you're an insurance guy. Let's say you're a banker guy. You're not a you're an insurance guy. There's no banker guys in here. Redemption is a financial term, okay? It speaks of a transaction. And it's very accurate because there was a spiritual transaction that happened at Calvary. And there's a spiritual transaction that takes place when a person comes to Jesus, obeys the gospel, and is born again. So like when, oh, for those of you, if you're young, you may not know these, but for the, all, the, all you old folks here, remember that, those great old songs, Jesus paid it all? Anybody else know Jesus paid it all? Okay. He paid it all. And all to him I owe. But here's the thing. Paid does not mean applied. You got to apply this payment. And that becomes very, very important also. 
what Jesus did on the cross, it is only applied to our lives through baptism. In Romans 6 and 3, it says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were also baptized into his death. Therefore, we're buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we should also in the likeness of his resurrection. Baptism is where the blood is applied and the name of Jesus is given over your life. Acts 2 and 38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. The remission, that word, it means freedom or pardon. It's, It's a release of obligation. It was not only paid, but it was remitted from your life when you were covered in baptism. The best way to describe this is uh, if you have like a whiteboard. Does anyone use whiteboards anymore? I do. It's a clear board. (laughs) You have a whiteboard. You have writing all over the place, and you take that, and you begin to wash everything off. It becomes clear. Your pastor decided to... Give me a, a, another couple examples. Set an exasketch. Mm-hmm. Ever had one of those? I yeah. could never draw anything with an exasketch. But at the end, I knew I could just shake it up yeah. and everything yeah. was completely new. Oh. He also said a magna doodle. Is that even a thing? That is a thing, yes. You're just a young he's made up. He's made up magna, words. No, no. There is a such thing as a magna doodle. If Look that's what you need to think of when you think of redemption, think of a magna doodle. I'm going to stick with an exasketch. <laughs> It's like someone paying your bill. Have you ever had someone pay your bill? Mm-hmm. What a blessing. There's been times pastors paid my bill. There's many times I've paid your bill. <laughs> a few. <laughs> it's like someone paying your ticket. He's also paid some of my tickets. i paid a bunch of tickets, Man. too. <laughs> it is setting the guilty free. It's taking a debt that I should have paid. It's a price that I should have paid myself that I could not afford in paying it for me. The blood of Jesus is your payment. It's the the currency for the transaction of your redemption and my redemption. So to summarize tonight, crucifixion was one of the most horrible deaths known to man. I would argue still is. I don't know many that, that are worse than that. And Jesus subjected and humbled himself to become flesh and suffer death. I want you to think about that. He, he made himself small to even become flesh. He submitted and humbled himself to just even to become like us. But then submitted himself even further to allow death to reign over him. And then submitted himself even further to the death of the cross. His death paid our ransom in his blood and redeemed us from the sentence of sin that we are all subject to, no matter who you are, where you've been, where you were born, we were born into sin. The wages of sin are death. But this redemption transaction that happened at Calvary, it is applied at baptism. 
Now I'm looking across here and I believe everybody is, but maybe there's somebody online. If you have never been baptized in Jesus name, you can thank God for that payment. You can thank God for that sacrifice, but it's not applied to your life until you go down in the name of Jesus. And when you go down in the name of Jesus, that blood is applied, that sin is taken away. How many of you remember, does anybody remember the day you were baptized? Anybody remember how clean and how wonderful you felt to realize and really grasp that idea that everything you had ever done was absolutely erased and committed to the sea of forgetfulness and you started fresh. Amen. I thank God for the cross. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the next exciting part. Because, listen, uh, I thank God for things being wiped clean. But then after things are wiped clean, I need some power to walk like he wants me to walk. Amen. And so, you know, going back to that scripture, we're baptized into his death. For what reason? That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. This, uh, thank God for what the death and burial did for us in wiping our sin clean. But also we're gonna thank God next week for the, what the resurrection does in our lives and causes us to walk in that newness of life. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we wanna thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. I don't know, Lord, some 2,000 years later, if we really completely understand just the brutal beating that you took and the, the horrible death that you suffered. God, I don't know if we are able, even in our minds, to wrap our minds around being able to understand that that was our price. But Lord, as much as we are able, we thank you. We thank you for your blood that was spilled, for the transgressions that we've committed. We, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy and grace that held you, the mission, God, that was in your mind and in your heart Lord Jesus, to submit yourself to such atrocity. We thank you, Lord, for that right now, God. We thank you and we remember, God, even as you command, we remember until you're coming the death and the blood that was shed for us. Father, help us, Lord Jesus, to never forget. Help us, Lord Jesus, to keep in perspective just how fortunate we are to be able to know your power and to know the blood of Jesus over our lives. We thank you for your name, God, that has been given to us in baptism. We we thank you for the power that that name brings to our lives, and we give you praise tonight. Thank you for these people, Lord, that have come to study the word of the Lord. I pray the blessing of God upon them, and let them go in your blessing, in your name, and God, with the remission of sins in your blood, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming to Bible study tonight. Hopefully you signed up for next week. We're going to talk about the resurrection and ascension. It's going to be an exciting lesson. Don't miss it. And then four days after that, it'll be Christmas. It's going to be a great week next week. God bless you. Don't forget also this weekend, great service on Sunday. Then everybody in the church, everybody in the church is heading over to the community center. We're going to minister to 60 families. I got great news this week. Because we were like, how many of these people are going to show up? We have firm commitment, firm commitment right now that 58 of these families are going to be here. And we've just got a, just a communication issue with the other two. We believe in that all 60 of these families are going to show up. Come minister to somebody. If you haven't given towards that, go to theapc.com. Go to the giving section and make sure you give to that. 
$200 will help Tupelo. We're sending Tupelo money for our kids there at Tupelo. And of course, covering uh, these groceries and this food and these gifts for the families in our community. Sunday night, our Christmas program, we're combining our services with the church and normal. Our daughter work's gonna be with us. They're part of that program. We're gonna have a great time. There's gonna be cookies down here afterwards. Fantastic week heading into Christmas. Also, let me, the last thing, let me also tell you that Christmas morning, we will have service here. It will be abbreviated. I realize we've got lots of fam people have family, they have time, Christmas traditions. If you can be here, we will have service here at 10 o'clock. It'll be abbreviated service. Wonderful Christmas music, Christmas songs, Christmas worship. I'll have a message. I'll be short. I'll be short. I've got grandkids, okay? I've got family too. So we'll be short. But come and gather with us on Christmas. I can't think of a better way to kick off your Christmas celebration than to be in the house of the Lord with your church family celebrating the Lord. Amen. Now, God bless you. Go in Jesus' name.